I see designers kind of looking at uh, this generative AI as a as a starting point, a launch pad for something more creative. They may uh, craft uh, an example website, and now they're not. I mean, I already saw this yesterday. Designers not using Latin lorem ipsum anymore. They actually generated all the text um, using GPT, and it made for a better, uh, a better, you know, design presentation. So we're reviewing it now with real text. And yeah, it's interesting. It's it seems like generative AI has moved the starting point forward in a lot of different industries. Like you can you can start a project in in a much less rough version of a draft. Um, which which has all sorts of right. ancillary benefits, and it's interesting too because um, we've talked a bit about how you know the NLU training models that were used maybe a year ago are now looking kind of out of date because with GPT, if you're prompt en- engineering, you don't have to start at zero. You can you can right. start way further down the line and yeah. get things moving much qu- much more quickly. Yep, and then people who don't have design skills or or particularly good writing skills, get to do generic stuff that's passable. Yeah. Uh, and they so they get to they get to play in a game they have otherwise been excluded from. I believe that we're on on a pathway to having the discussion about, you know, what what is work, what is a job mm-hmm. to someone, um, and what does work look like, and what should work look like, uh, if. If machines can do our jobs, of course we can be nervous, you know, about, um, you know, losing our income. But we can also wonder on the other side of that coin, then what do we do and what does a job look like? Um, And so companies, you know, being so focused on productivity and then employees being focused on their productivity within that company... um, now, do we start talking about what it looks like to be an employee and, and a happy employee that's enjoying their job? Um, and can these conversations take us to being more employee-centric? Welcome back to Invisible Machines. Over the last couple of episodes, Rob and I have been digging into sort of the relationship between experience design and AI. Last episode, we had a great conversation with uh, experience design legend Jesse James Garrett, and we kind of came to the conclusion at the end that that conversational design or, or prompt design is really kind of a solid entry point and just an important role uh, for experience designers to take as more and more solutions that uh, bring technology closer to users involve conversational interfaces as opposed to you know the strictly visual interfaces we've become accustomed to over the past couple of decades. So I wanted to dig into that a little more with Rob. Like what what does it mean to be a conversational designer? What does it mean to design conversations? What does that look like? How does uh, GPT figure into that work? We kind of cover a lot of ground in sort of a short period of time. So I guess we'll go ahead and get to that conversation now. All right, so Rob, uh, for the past two episodes now, we've been we've been talking a lot about how AI and UX need to kind of come together. Uh, and last sure. week we had a conversation with with Jesse James Garrett, and he I think kind of came to the conclusion, or we all did by the end, that 
that maybe where it starts uh, for experienced designers uh, working with AI is in prompt design or conversational design. Okay. So I thought maybe we could talk a little bit about uh, you know what that what that role might look like, or even what versions of it you're seeing today. Yeah, design. Where is it going? Where you know, what are the apps of tomorrow? You know, what do they look like? And who's gonna make them? Um, and are they gonna be made on the fly? Or are these gonna be cre pre-created experiences that we, as a team, get together, design, and, and share with the world? Um, and uh, of course, you know, the answer is both. I think, you know, th if you if you look at the value of being able to dynamically generate ephemeral apps that appear and disappear for one-time use, um, they're very they can be very customized to the user, very customized to the task. And from a UX standpoint, we all know the rule is like the more choices, the harder it is, the more cognitive load. So if we have this context engine that really is at the back of everything, I mean, chat GPT is cool, but what's most cool about it is what it can do with context, how well it can use context to me. That's what I'm most excited. How, how well it talks is awesome, but how well it uses context is is most um, most interesting. Um, so now we feed the system context; it feeds us a dialed-in custom experience for that context. Whether that that experience is a graphical one or a conversational one, um, probably just depends on the appropriateness of, of one versus the other based on is it data heavy, probably more graphical. If it's more workflow oriented, then it's going to be more conversational. Um, but it'll always be in context of a conversation. And so um, it, it feels like design becomes like this idea of designing these micro elements that are really cool, you know, these components that can be mixed and sequenced together to create experiences on the fly, like a like a map with a pin, you know, that you can move around. And we'll just keep iterating on these these components. Um, and then the other side of it is the whole experience and looking at it holistically. So, in a way, UX, you know, I think I used to say that UX is the new CX just because so much of our interactions are now digital. Mm -hmm. um, and if you go into a grocery store and you do the auto checkout, like we start to see that, you know, how UX is infiltrating our, even our, our physical store experiences. So UX is the new CX. If you started walking around the store and there was a bot that you could ask questions and could guide you, we're starting to see that happen more, getting more towards UX being the new CX. Um, 
And so now we look at UXers as a community and really starting to up-level their view, their worldview in terms of what they design, going up to more of a CX level, um, tr looking at the experience of a customer more relationship-oriented, more holistically, um, and then thinking about the experience uh, more broadly. And then we kind of flip back, as I said earlier, to the micro UIs where then you have like visual designers that are they're going to focus more on the components that enhance a conversation or contribute to a conversation. So, um, you know, just like a PowerPoint is to a presentation in TED, in a TED talk, um, okay. you know, what you put in there and what content you put in there, uh, you know, that has to be designed in some way. And, and if it's going to be an original talk, that slide probably doesn't exist and it's probably not going to be well-crafted by some AI. So yeah, I see designers kind of looking at, uh, this generative AI as a, as a starting point, a launch pad for something more creative. They may, uh, craft uh an example website and now they're not i mean i already saw this yesterday designers not using latin lorem ipsum anymore they actually generated all the text um using gpt and it made for a better uh a better you know design presentation so we're reviewing it now with real text and um it's interesting how now when the text has to be written you know, it gets handed to somebody who would typically do that. A lot of times it's not a copywriter. A lot of times it's just the business, you know, mm -hmm. somebody on the business side writing this stuff. Um, and so now they get this starting point that isn't Latin. They get the starting point that was GPT written, and then they'll edit it, fact check it, polish it, and out the door it goes. Um, so in that particular example where somebody designed it, you know, change the text from Latin to GPT, and it di it didn't radically change anyone's job. Um, it certainly, if if either side was changed, it was more on the business side, not having to write all that text. Um, spend as much time on the text; they still gotta edit it. Uh, and then generative imagery. I think it's the same idea. You know, if if you're going to, you know, make an ad for Boeing and it's going to show, let's say it's for a, whatever, you know, a, 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 an aeronautics engineer, you know, and, and you want to put them on a beach in a chair with all the fl planes in the air and you can say, you know, we keep planes in the air. <laughs> um, you may just you know, have GPT create the background with the airplanes in the air, but then the artist, you know, may draw or f photograph either one, you know, the, the mechanic, because you want to get the right person and the right characteristics. And like, you really want to fine tune and think about who they are and, and, and how to connect them. 
and you may just not need the, you know, it's like your green screen, right? It's just a, you don't let someone else do the background, let GPT do the background. Um, and then you spend more time getting the detail right. Yeah, it's interesting. It's, it seems like generative AI has moved the starting point forward in a lot of different industries. Like you can, you can start a project in, in a much less rough version of a draft, um, which, which has all sorts of right. ancillary benefits. And it's interesting too, because um, we've talked a bit about how, you know, the NLU training models that were used maybe a year ago are now looking kind of out of date because with GPT, if you're prompt in engineering, you don't have to start at zero. You can you can right. start way further down the line and yeah. get things moving much qu much more quickly. Yep. And then people who don't have design skills or or particularly good writing skills get to do generic stuff that's passable. Yeah. Uh, and they so they get to they get to play in a game they have otherwise been excluded from. Um, and that's you know that's just going to be generic production work that that they can now do that was probably somewhat soul-sucking for the designer anyway um yeah you know so so yeah i think it's going to change i don't think it's going to be as radical as everybody thinks you know it's the same with coding you know the idea that you know code will go faster um yes it will but there's you know everybody's got their own stack their tech stack and trying to feed GPT all the details of your tech stack and then get it to write code that's appropriate for that stack. I mean, it's already tough enough. You know, I played a lot with it on writing SQL queries and you know, trying to feed it the schema, um, a complex schema and get it to write a query. You know, it's, it's pretty, it, I mean, it's does, a surprisingly good job given how given my expectations but you know far from from writing a high performing query um so and and then the the, the writing of the query someone's got to read it and fact check it so to speak make sure it is right it is high performing you know it, it's it's if you don't have the skills to read what it wrote and review it uh, and edit it, then you know it's it's not going to work. You're, you're gonna you're gonna have a lot of problems, and you're just going to get stuck. So the skill set again, velocity goes up on all this stuff. That's what I see, and I don't see a shortage of demand anywhere in sight for more content and more uh, more applications and software. You know, they say we're going to write more software in the next five years than we've written in the last forty years. So, um. I, I think when people make these observations about, you know, you know, jobs being being, you know, removed, um, you know, they gotta look at the, the words, it's more jobs changed. Mm -hmm. And 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 they're not taking into account the potential demand that happens as you know, content and applications become cheaper to build, demand goes up for more applications so unless we can see a ceiling on the demand um then then we can't assume that you know that 
that these jobs are, are going to go away. I think it's just going to be more of a velocity thing. We're going to be able to, humans will be able to do a lot more, a lot faster um, to meet yeah. the demand. Uh, and and demand for it will probably just continue to go up and up and up. But, you know, stop. And my brother, uh, oh, yeah. No, I was going to say, my, my brother uh, is an IT lead at a tech company. And he, when we were hanging out recently, he was telling me about how he used ChatGPT to create code um, to automate um, essentially an HR task um, to shut down people's various accounts uh, when they left the company. Um, and it was a huge multi-step process that would take someone better part of the day. And he was able to kind of use ChatGPT to write code and then do some research to try and patch it. Um, and he was able to automate an experience. It was funny because I, I told him, like, you're pretty much doing what, what we wrote about in this book. Yeah. <laughs> In some sense, and it's interesting to me that, um, you know, I, I think as we were writing the book, in my mind, I was picturing large business or enterprise kind of having these first explosive moments with AI where it was kind of unleashed on the public and people would freak out, but it's it's materializing differently. And I, I saw that that uh, ChatGPT is, uh, they're, they're going to release some plugins soon that essentially allow people to create their own automated to-do lists and a lot of other things. Uh, so it's... it's it's interesting too because we we talk in the book about our hope that this technology has a democratizing power, um, and like yeah, you mentioned, yeah. it can give people agency who never felt like they had it before. And so, in one in one sense, it's inspiring to see that that is kind of happening. Yeah, uh, I, individuals seem like they're as far along in their journey as a lot of enterprises. I mean, when we were doing our our pre show calisthenics, Rob, you mentioned a uh, a Gartner study that you read that like only 12% of enterprise maybe yeah. has a plan in place? Yeah, 12% have a plan on how they might adopt chat GPT at the moment. It's for the fastest adopted app in history, it's actually pretty low, you know, because they're just kind of forward thinking, right? Yeah. That was the question. It wasn't have you, it's are you thinking about it? And they're not, they're not even really thinking about it. Just mind-boggling to me but um the 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 thing i i want to say too is like demand on that demand side i just want to circle back to that because i think it's also important that that people understand that the the bar for good creative has room to grow also not just more creative not just more applications but but there's a lot of room for improvement so we recently uh, just did a user test. Um, it was pretty comprehensive. Uh, and we were uh, testing the ability to, to take a, an appointment over the phone through, uh, through automation. And we picked one of the leading vendors, you know, um, that, that in conversational AI which was a competitor to OneReach, competitor to us. Um, and it's one that, you know, they have, they have on their, on their website, a, an example of you call in and it, you know, you make an appointment over the phone, uh, with, with an automated system. And, and so they're, you know, they, they wouldn't put it on their website if they weren't very proud of it, right? This is obviously them providing an example of one of their best best um 
experiences and capabilities mm-hmm. of the system. So uh, we were user testing it against a, 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 an alpha bot that we had created um, for a company that wants to do the same similar thing, but is super, super sensitive about automation, uh, very high touch, very white glove, um, uh, you know, feels like their, their customers care about that human on the other end. And so they're, they're, they're very reticent to, to do anything, uh, other than automate, you know, behind the scenes, Mm -hmm. um, or automate to help the human experience become better. So anyway, we're doing this intensive, uh, tests, um, NPS scores and, you know, the whole nine yards. Um, and, and, and we, and we did an AB test between, you know, this experience, you know, that would probably parallel something you'd find on United Airlines, the one, the one from our competitor. Um, and, and then the one we had created this alpha version we had created, um, and we'd used generative AI in a unique way. Um, and, um, the containment, so the percentage of people that actually got an appointment was like 80 plus percent on the, the competitive bot. Um, and the, uh, containment score on the alpha bot that we were using generative with was like 98%. And so we see, okay, that's a pretty big difference. It's almost full containment, right? That's, that's quite amazing. Um, but not like this huge leap, right? Not this massive leap, uh, 80 for most companies, they would think of that as a, a very big success story that they, on a complex use case like that. And so, so they would probably internally, you know, wave the flag as that's a big win contained 80%, you know, tons of cost savings. Um, but the MPS score, this is where it gets interesting. The MPS score on the, you know, on the competitive one was 40 or four. And the NPS score typically for like a call center to give you kind of an idea is about five or 50. So what we say is people were contained, they were able to get their appointment through automation, but they were less satisfied with that as compared to, you know, typically how satisfied they are with a human. So that's not going to pass, right? For this company uh, that is so customer centric, you know, they're not going to, to, um, deploy a solution that's worse than what they have today, even if it costs less. Um, but the MPS score on the Alphabot that we launched was 83, like off the charts and 83, right? It's huge. Yeah. So what we see is that even though the containment rates are much narrower, like the, the margin, the difference, the Delta was like 83 to, to 98. Um, the MPS score was like the difference between worse than a call center to much better than a call center. 
And the main difference as you listen to people interact with the system was all the subtle little fine-tuning things, like, like making sure that the bot was like highly responsive from a timing standpoint, you know, making sure that the that it that it clearly understood what the person had said, all of the exception handling, you know, because people were going off the walls, you know, on the things they were asking, like, how do I know? You know, what do I do if I can't have to cancel? Hey, do you have anything sooner? You know, I'll take the middle appointment you suggested. Uh, I I have school in the morning uh, mm-hmm. and Wednesday afternoon I can't, but any other time is great. You know, all of this stuff. And it was just getting it like shockingly well, just understanding all of that to the point that people were like, wow, this is. You know, I, I came in, it answered, it gave me an appointment, it understood me, I was out with that MPS score. My point in this long story is that there's a lot of fine-tuning left to do with all of our experiences out there. Uh-huh. We can raise the bar on every app interface, on every conversational experience. Um, there's a lot of room for improvement, and if this velocity... Um, just translated into a just a higher bar for UX across the board, that would probably be best case scenario, right? Um, now yeah. we just have, we take the same amount of time, but we just raise the bar on the quality of, of the experience. We do more user testing. We more do more iteration. Um, and, uh, and ultimately everyone wins in that scenario. Uh, and that, that's just, in my ideal world, that's where this goes. It just goes to a race for who can offer their customer the best experience, not who can get their costs down the most while camp compromising, you know, the least. <laughs> yeah. And, and that's a huge paradigm shift in call centers and IVR in particular, because it feels like there's sort of this unspoken agreement between customers and businesses where like, Hey, we... Businesses are like, yeah, we know this experience is pretty crappy, but we're just going to do it because it saves us enough money to make it worth annoying our customers. And customers yeah. just sort of accept that, oh, yeah, when I call in, it's going to take way longer than I want it to, and I might not get what I want. Right. Um, and this proves that there are much better ways of doing things. Exactly. And, 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 it's also like on separate channels. I know some people think the phone channel is going away. I, I, I wholeheartedly disagree. And I remember people saying that about email 20 years ago. Um, and, and I think it has a lot to do with just the, the speed in which and efficiency in which we can communicate data uh, by talking versus typing. Mm-hmm. So um, I, I really don't believe that that until there's a faster way, a higher bandwidth way to communicate data for for many people, that it's going to go anywhere. Um, but with that said, making those experiences amazing, uh, allowing you to text in, as well as call in, as well as WhatsApp in, as well as use a mobile app that has a bot in it, as well as you know reach out over Slack or Teams, like just broadening the channels and the access um, 
just making it easier, creating experiences on all these channels. There's so much room for just creating better experiences than what we have. And fine tuning is kind of the key word there. With Velocity offers the opportunity for more fine tuning and and more innovation on design versus technology innovation. And and I think that's gonna the companies that get that and get after that, that understand that it's not about containment scores, it's about MPS scores, and yeah. they care about that. Um, they're the ones that are gonna the you know win in this game, in, in my opinion. Yeah, and th- this is a familiar struggle for experienced designers, like getting people to focus on the right things. But I think as soon as a few large companies do this right, it's gonna reset yeah. the bar because I agree. it's that big of a difference. Yeah, and I think experienced designers are always always frustrated that they're not given the time um, that they don't get to iterate enough. Um, I, I've no, I, you know, I've known many, many, many that aren't even there to see it implemented. You know, they design something and they walk away and they don't even know if it ever got built. Um, yeah. And to be able to like see it being built and it become more like a craft where it gets built and designed and iterated on um, in real time or at least, you know, in, in, in a, at a high velocity, you know, it changes the game and it, and it ups and increases the quality overall. So, you know, as usual, I'm pretty excited about uh, better experiences and better tools for experienced designers. Uh, and that's where I think this is going to go. But um, I do find it interesting that there's, you know, there's this conversation going on to stop, kind of pause on, on GPT-4. Yeah. And say, hey, let's let's pause AI development for six months while we figure this out. Yeah, um, it's hard to know how much of that is genuinely out of concern or maybe some people wanting to play catch up it's, it's kind of yeah it's kind of difficult to tell yeah um, that and, seems and it's unlikely tough. yeah and, and from for technologists to say that you know because you're like pause what is that measuring stick for where we're pausing exactly is it is it just the number that's attached to the end of gpt like four so G, no gpt no fives Everyone can yeah. do fours and threes and twos and ones, but no fives. Um, you know, is it the size of the language model? Uh, because yeah. that's not, you know, that's not where it's going is bigger language models. It's going to, you know, more fine tuning on the language models that we have. Um, it, it's, it's, yeah, I'm very surprised by it. It doesn't seem realistic to me. And maybe there's something I don't understand about you know, how, how to pause something like that. But it's, how do you pause pause the development of something that's so abstract as AI? <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's like it's like a train. You train and hit the brakes, but it's not going to stop for like three miles. Right. Or even more, it's like a cloud. That's, <laughs> that's <Yeah>. like, <laughs> you're like, stop. Like, what? Stop where? Like, stop the cloud that you can see? Stop the cloud... Uh, that you can't see where do you stop it what's stopping um what particular things yeah just yeah i mean it does seem like there could be a, a very legitimate case for for being a little more slow and deliberate as we move through this stuff but even that seems a bit yeah. like a stretch um and I, I feel like if they if 
if these companies pause development, as long as they don't unplug the products, I feel like people are still going to use them and they're going right. to push it forward in, in their own way, well, which maybe that would be a nice outcome too, but yeah, that's it's not going to stop. That's kind of where I went is like, for the folks I know that are, that are, that are doing this and they're pretty advanced at the moment, um, what they're trying to do is, is, uh, like the, the sort of next, um, challenges that they're trying to, to solve is the, the parts where it does unnecessary damage. So think about Elon Musk with self-driving cars. Where is he at with that? Uh, it's not getting the car to go or stop anymore. Like that's, that he's figured out how to turn the wheel. All of those things is figured out. He's trying to nail it down so it doesn't kill anybody or hit anything right so if you were to say pause self-driving you're basically saying don't make it safer because that's that's where where it is right now right is trying to make it safer and i'm sure he doesn't mean that but but yeah it does does sound like that yeah yeah and, th and that's an idea we've talked about too the, the idea that like making machines less dumb yeah. Might ultimately be a good thing because machines yeah. kill a lot of people. That's where I go to and all this is just some part of me just wonders if the whole AI thing and the words just need to go away. <laughs> yeah. You know, I, I, smarter machines, dumber machines. Dumber machines kill people. Smarter machines can be designed to save people's lives. Cars, factories, skill size that can tell the difference between fingers and wood. And, you know, a two by four, um, uh, it's just a smarter machine. Um, and, and if that machine gets so complex that it's dangerous, then it's a dangerous machine, just like yeah. dumb machines are dangerous machines. And so we need to be anti-dangerous machines, whether they're dumb or smart and pro safe machines uh it, whether that makes whether they're dumb or smart yeah and and artificial intelligence sort of implies at least to some people that we're trying that we're trying to copy human intelligence which yeah to me would be maybe the most dangerous outcome if yeah a machine was as irrational as people can be yeah but also had so much more power then then we're in trouble yeah what I like about all this, though, is that I believe that we're on on a pathway to having the discussion about, you know, what what is work, what is a job to someone, um, and what does work look like, and what should work look like. Uh, if if machines can do our jobs, of course we can be nervous, you know, about, um, you know, losing our income, but we can also wonder on the other side of that coin, then what do we do and what does a job look like? Um, and so companies, you know, being so focused on productivity and then employees being focused on their productivity within that company. Um, now, do we start talking about what it looks like to be an employee and, and a happy employee that's enjoying their job um, and can these conversations take us to being more employee centric 
Um, it's sort of like customer first, employee last. You know, shareholder, customer, employee tends to be how it normally goes. Um, you know, are we shifting to more of an employee first over time here, where we're we're looking at, um, you know, the experience of work, and so to to kind of ground it and bring it home, it's is slowing down AI just about slowing down the transition of how quickly our jobs change so we're not so disrupted um, and affected by this. Uh, and and if that's all it's about is, you know, caring about the, the experience that workers are going to have throughout this process and, and the identity crisis that many might face because they have to see, seek therapy to go from a productivity, you know, value to, to a connection and, and creativity value system and say, you know, I'm not, I'm not what I produce. I'm, I'm the connections I have. And if we're just trying to slow that down to give people a chance, what I like about you know, that, that idea is that it starts to say, let's talk about how to make work more enjoyable for people. And if that's the beginning of that discussion, I kind of like that avenue, right? Not how do we stop AI from, you know, destroying the world, but hey, let's let's start to think about what jobs should look like and the experience for employees. If if that's where this goes, I, I'd be pretty happy and okay with it. Um, yeah, and it'd be good to apply that same line of thinking toward like how it should be regulated, how it can be used equitably so that, you know, right. people, people with far less means or marginalized people are getting, are seeing a benefit from it as well. Yeah. Yeah. It, I mean, I, you know, there are people I'm sure having this discussion all the time right now. Right. Um, and it's fun to have it, but, but there is that idea that says, you know, you have a investor sitting in their house you know, watching their money grow. Um, and then you have a, a company that they've invested in being run by a management team that's got stock in that company. So they're essentially an investor and they're sitting back watching their money grow, looking at the employees as well. So they sit on the bridge, right, between investors and and the employee experience. Um, and then you got you know, the employee that's, you know, getting a paycheck and trying to enjoy their lives. Um, and that investor typically just, it really, they don't really care about that employee's experience. Like that's not, that's not their motivation, right? They're not motivated. They didn't invest in a company to try to create a better employee experience. They invested in a company to see their money grow. <laughs> and um, you know, as we endeavor to have this conversation about what employee experience look like, um, you know, we, we face this opportunity where, where, where now it doesn't have to be a, a choice, you know, should we make the investor happy or the employee happy? Which one gets to be happy? Um, maybe we start getting to a place where both can be. Right, where, where, where the discussion and the tug of war can, can 
sort of stop or at least uh, have less conflict. And, and we have this period where productivity can stay high and, and we can actually care about employee experience uh, and, not, and not see the bottom line get hurt by it. And I think those CEOs that sit in the middle, those management teams that embrace this and run towards it, um, I think, you know, they'll, they'll see that um, this will give them a huge competitive advantage because they're, you know, to, to live in that world where they're not constantly fighting between these two worlds, not trying to get employees to, to produce more um, to the point, you know, just to the point where they don't quit, trying to get investors a return, um, you know, while trying to work their employees harder than every other company. Uh, we now see a world where employee experience and profitability can coexist for a while. Um, so yeah, I look forward to that, to those, um, to those conversations and those projects that drive in this direction, the, to take it back to the Gardner thing though, seeing this 12% kind of says they're not quite there yet. This isn't a run towards thing. It's a, it's a fear, um, and, and mitigate risk. Uh, wait for someone else to jump uh, scenario, I think. Yeah, and to, and to bring it back to experienced designers, I mean, this could be another opportunity for them to kind of lead a charge internally. I mean, experienced designers have a long, glorious track record of advocating for, for end users. Um, and I feel like now it's it almost feels like they're people advocating for other people because especially in terms of like an employee experience, they get to be involved in creating these I guess we like to put the word hyper in front of things, but you really right. now can create these hyper contextualized experiences, yeah. which I, I think to the design mind is a really exciting challenge because you have so much more control and uh, information and yeah. so much more to draw from. Um, and then also, as you mentioned, you get to not only ideally design these solutions, but you get to watch them being used and yeah. you get to be if not the human in the loop, you can have a human in the loop who's in there jumping in to improve the experiences, to move them along, and that's allowing you to iterate and continue to approve them. I mean, it's it's almost like a yeah. accelerated design cycle that could ra be rather intoxicating I think, yeah. if you get in the mix. Yeah, I agree. Yeah, the hyper-automation uh, bandwagon, I think, uh, I, it's interesting because it's almost like AI. Everyone's got their own definition for what mm -hmm. it means. I saw one recently... I think it was a Gartner paper, again. They said, hyper-automation is the act of automating as much as you can, as fast as you can. It's simply put. Um, yeah. And uh, I found that, I, I found that clarifying, like, yes, that's pretty much what it is. Um, and and if you wanted to, to just add a layer, you'd say hyper-automation is the act of automating as much as you can, as fast as you can, uh, while being concerned about the safety of your employees and customers. Yeah. Uh, and the quality of the experience. And the quality too. Think, of the experience. Yeah. Get that ingredient in there as well. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. The quality of, of, of life for your, for your employees and, and customers, a better way to say that. Yeah. Yeah. 
and maybe even an improvement in quality of life for the uh-huh. whole world. Wouldn't that be nice? Yeah, wouldn't that? We could all just... <laughs> all right, Rob. Well, until next week. Yeah. It's been fun. It has, as usual. All right, thanks again for joining us on Invisible Machines. We are produced in partnership with UX Magazine. Be sure to follow UX Magazine wherever you get your podcasts for new episodes. You can also watch this podcast on the Invisible Machines YouTube channel. Special thank you to user 69663830 on SoundCloud for the thoughtful comment about experience design uh, on episode five. Uh, I hope you enjoyed episode six, and I hope episode seven has been useful as well. That goes out to all our listeners, but especially those involved in experience design. This is an important moment, and we need your help. A special thanks to the marketing team at OneReach.ai and the team at UXMag for all your support. Thank you, as always, to Michael Litvinov, our video editor. We look forward to connecting with you again next week on Invisible Machines.